Good morning. My name is Bobby, and I'll be reading the scripture this morning. Uh, the first uh, scripture is going to be Romans 12. And if you would stand, please. Put my glasses on. Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The next scripture is found in John chapter 17, verses 13 through 19. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate them myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you for the safety of all those who have uh, been able to come here to this uh, building today, and we thank you for the safety of those who may be traveling, those who may be ill, those who have uh, issues, Father, that would not allow them to uh, get in their car and come here today. But Lord, we know that you are with them and that as they listen this morning, that they will hear your word, your truth as it presented by Pastor Matt. Lord, help us to open our hearts uh, to be willing to accept that which you send to us this morning. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. We're in our sermon series, continuing on in what we call these gospel traits. I want to start today's sermon by taking a poll. Uh, so you can just raise your hand uh, on any of these, depending upon where you stand. So here's the poll. Uh, first of all, who's seen any of the Harry Potter movies or read any of the books? Cool. Whose kids got taught to believe in Santa? All right. It's a safe place. You can raise your hand. No one's going to no gonna call you out. Uh, who's boycotting Disney right now? All right. Who's got a tattoo? You don't need to show it. Who's got a tattoo or tattoos? Cool. Hands down. Who's never going to get a tattoo? All right. Who has watched an R-rated movie that wasn't the Passion of the Christ within the last year? All right. Who's got their kids in public school? All right, who's got their kids in private school? Who's, what about Christian school? Ooh, elite tier right there. Okay, cool. Who lets their kids on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, the internet without any net nanny monitoring software? Who, who only lets their kids on that stuff if they have net monitoring software? All right. 
All right, here's, here's Biggie. Who's missed Sunday morning church for sports? All right. Whose kids have missed Sunday morning church for sports? All right, here's the big whammy. Who's missed church because you were letting your kids miss church for sports? All right. I, I want to let us all off the hook just for a second here. Whoever you are, whatever you raised your hand to or didn't raise your hand to on any of those items on that poll, not a single one of those things makes you a Christian or not. Not a single one of them makes you a Christian or identifies you as a Christian or not. You ever wonder, and you probably have, about what things in this world Christians are and aren't allowed to do. That's a big debate in our modern Christian world, and it's, but it's not a new one. This, is, this has been an ongoing, multi-territoried fight since the birth of the church 2,000 years ago. And to, so to help us in that, I, I want to draw our attention today to some categories of thinking so that we can manage some apparent tensions that appear in the scripture. One is don't be conformed to the world. And another one is become all things to all people. In, in our scripture reading from John 17, Jesus is asking his father to not let his people be of the world while they're in it. And the Apostle Paul, from our reading in Romans 12, he, he just told us, do not be like the world. Don't adopt the thinking, the feeling, the speaking, or the doing of the unbelievers around us. And yet this same Paul says in a place like 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, though I am free and I belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I've become like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I've become like one who's under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I've become like one who doesn't have the law, though I am not free of, from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those that don't have the law. To the weak, I've become weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. So this Paul is not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He's not in conflict with Jesus, and he's not in conflict with himself. My hope today is that we can provide ourselves with, with biblical structures of thought and mind so that our minds will be transformed and enabled to discern what is the will of God in your everyday life. This everyday life, which, which requires Christian wisdom, which requires a wise mind that comes from Christ, because the, the scriptures are absolutely silent on what, you, what, what informed you on what clothing you wore this morning, or what you ate for breakfast, or whether or not you're going to go to lunch or not. They're, they're, they're absolutely silent on the explicit, simple, everyday decisions all over the place. The Bible is very clear and proclaims very, very clear, true commands and laws and expectations of the Lord. But there's a whole bunch of places where the Bible doesn't directly speak to us. So how are we going to discern what the will of God is in our everyday life? Because we're not to be conformed to this world, to the pattern of the people who are unbelieving. And in some way, apparently, we are to conform somehow to the world. In some way. I want to make clear what the outward, visible 
life trait of a Christian should be apparent here, and it's going to stand in contrast to the rest of the unbelieving world, the culture around us. What does it look like for a Christian who is not of this world to live as a Christian in this world? So I'll say the main point, one, my Matt Ford long version, and two, the shortened version. All right, here we go. A Christian who believes the gospel doctrines knows that he lives in and amongst an unbelieving world. But that Christian also lives according to the truth, the values, and the commands of the kingdom for those who believe. So here's the main point, shorter. Here's the main point of the sermon. Christians live as natives in this world and foreigners of Christ's kingdom. I want the emphasis to kind of be felt a little bit on those, those two prepositions in and of. Christians live as natives in this world, but we are live as foreigners of Christ's kingdom. See, Paul's holding a tensioned balance between two attitudes of Christianity as we live in this fallen world. And this is a tension, okay? This is not an either or, this is a both and. These two attitudes can be named... Um, by two different categories. One would be the indigenous principle, and the other might be called the pilgrim principle, okay? Uh, this, I, I'm, I'm straight up letting you know up front, the cards face up, I'm, I'm straight up stealing some ideas from another uh, way better and greater pastor. His name is John Piper. Many of you are familiar with him. And he, he is pulling from a book by, name, uh, by a man named Andrew Walls, and the book is uh, The Missionary Movement in Christian History. For, for today's sermon, I'm, I'm just going to ad adapt those terms uh, to become two different minds, the native mind and the foreign mind. And Christians are to have both. We have both, the native mind and the foreign mind. The, the two big ideas here are that the gospel, and therefore the gospel believer, the Christian, can and ought to be at home in any culture of this fallen, unbelieving world. That's the native mind. Not only is the Christian able to find a home in the culture that you live in. In fact, we're sent into this world, into the culture that God sends you into the culture you live in purposefully to make your home there. That's the native mind. But the gospel also just as powerfully liberates a believer from the captivating authorities of any and every human culture. That's the foreign mind. So the Christian lives and finds a home in the culture that God has put them in, but that the values, the beliefs, the structures, the wisdom, the commands, right, the morals of the unbelieving culture that your home is in, they don't have the final authoritative say over your life because you are not only a native, but you're also a foreigner. Again, that's not an either-or paradigm. It's, it's both paradigm. It's, it's both and. You're both native and you're foreigner. So when we paraphrase in what Jesus says in his prayer from John 17, that we should be in the world but not of the world, we are recognizing both minds that Jesus wants us to have. We are in the world as natives. And we are not of the world because we're foreigners. So in a sense, we're, we're to be a separate sort of people. God means for us to be a separate sort of people, but not separated from the life of the people of this world. We are to participate in this world 
as natives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul, Paul instructs us in God's word, therefore go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. There's some sort of separation that God is calling his people to in this world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 11, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, since then you would need to go out of the world. You are not to associate with the sexually immoral of this world, but not the people of the world. Because if, if the command is you are not to associate with anyone who is perverted in any way sexually, you, you'd have to leave the planet to find someone who's not sexually perverted or immoral. Instead, Paul says, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. So we, we are to participate in this world amongst unbelievers engaging in all sorts of activities that unbelievers engage in. But we can't participate in the sinful things that unbelievers engage in. We have to separate our lives in those activities. And even, even more so, we can't participate with those who claim to be believers, those who go by the name of brother and profess and carry the reputation of Christ, but continue in unrepentant sin. We have to separate from them, at least in the sense of Christian fellowship. That is to say, someone who claims to be a believer, but they walk and live in unrepentant disobedience and sin to God's law, we can't call them brother. We, we, we can't treat them and associate with them as a brother we love. We have to we have to associate with them as a non-believer, a neighbor who we love. We're to separate ourselves and not. We aren't, we aren't to hobnob with unrepentant, sexually immoral Christians, and we are to hobnob with lost people who happen to be sexually immoral because our participation in normal life with the lost stands as a contrasting confrontation to their sexual sinful views and the Lord has sent us to live among them so this contrast is presented so I, we, we can think of this native foreign thing maybe in, in two other terms as well adaptation and confrontation adaptation and confrontation in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 11 and 12 Paul says you need to aspire to live quietly to mind your own affairs to work with your own hands so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one in 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is praying for Timothy and the Christians. He's saying, I, I want God to help us lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is living in an adaptive way. This is adaptation. To live in an adaptive way in the culture around us. Get a job. Shop at Walmart or Target. Go, go to the baseball game. See a movie. Read books. Watch the news, right? Listen to music, drive a car, wear the clothes of the people around you, like live a quiet life. In some sense, the aim here is don't aim to be making waves in your life amongst the non-believers. Don't try to cause a scene everywhere. You need to, in some way, try to fit in as a normal, healthy, functioning, humble, and godly member of society. You're not supposed to make the strangeness of being a Christian over a parent and make a big deal of it. You're not supposed to. You know why? Because if you 
live as a Christian, you won't have to. You won't have to make a big deal about it. Because as natives, while we are adapting, we're also foreigners who confront. In Ephesians chapter 5, 6 to 11, Paul says, The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Those who disobey God, whether they know that they're lost or they claim to be a Christian, but they are in unrepentant disobedience, these, the wrath of God comes upon them. So therefore, do not associate with them. Take, and here's what he means. Do not take part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And do, do, you, know how the, do you know how the unfruitful works of darkness get exposed? When we say, no, I can't do that. That gets exposed. Light gets shown because when a, an unbelieving, disobedient person says, this is okay, and I say, uh, no, I'm sorry, that, that's not okay. God tells me I can't do that, so I'm sorry, I can't do that. You don't have to make a big deal. But now light is shown, on, and, and now the darkness is seen, and they have to deal with that. They've been confronted with what you proclaim, which is, this is against God's commands. This is against God's will, against his character. I can't participate. This is what happens when a Christian doesn't adapt his thinking, their feeling, your living according to the sinful aspects of the culture around you. In, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, Christians are called upon and permitted by Jesus to fit into our native culture living as natives and not making a big deal and swaggering it around with, with every activity that we do going, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. You know why we don't have to? Because the world will make a big deal about it for us when we confront the views and the values and the morals and the norms of the culture that we're living in by not participating in those things. And you'll, you'll be punished your, your refusal to adapt will be received as implicit or explicit confrontation of the culture around you. And you'll be punished in, whether it's in minor or major ways. So the idea here is that we can adapt to many things the world engages in. We just can't adopt whatever the world engage, engages in. And that, that's going to challenge each of us. Because each of us, every single human being in here, we're going we're gonna to be tempted, we're going to tend to, toward overemphasis on one or the other side of this seesaw. Some of us will be far more likely to be too much native, what some might call worldly, right? And some of us will be tempted to become too much the foreigner, what, what some might call the fundamentalist, the separatist. Too much participation in the world or too much separation from the world, too much adaptation or too much confrontation. But God has given us the native and a foreign mind. He, he saved us for the purpose of making us his witnesses. He has saved us and made us his people. And he says, you therefore will be my witnesses. We are those who are supposed to testify and tell the truth to the world around us. And not just with our words, but with the way we live. We're supposed to testify to the person, work, promises, and glory of God through Jesus Christ. So he keeps us in a world like this. In fact, not only keeping us in, but sending us out into that world. 
on, on purpose. And he sends us as natives who participate and adapt to any and every culture so that his gospel can get out there and get in there. And if there's too much foreigner and not enough native, then none of us will be able to live in a way that the fallen people around us will be able to understand or accept this gospel. They won't, they won't trust us in any way, shape, or form because we're acting like we're not one of them. And we are, even though we're not. Jesus means for his gospel to get out there and to invade and, and, and seep into and saturate every culture. And that's going to take a foreigner who belongs to his kingdom entering in to those places in this world and living amongst them as natives speaking the kind of cultural language that lost people can understand so they might hear the gospel in a saving way. And so like they're they're kind of like four maybe biblical principles that I want to take us through that, are, that might help us manage and live in that, that, that tension that Jesus prays for us to live in, all right? All of them have a k sound, all right? Uh, because I am at my roots Baptist. One, we have creation. Two, Christ. Three, conversion. And four, kingdom. Uh, maybe we can take these four and, and use them as a lens, as a filter, as you look at your life and go, Am I allowed to do this or not? Is this a way that I'm a, I ought, can I glorify and honor God by participating in the normal everyday culture of the world around me? Can, or, or should I separate from it? Can I adapt to it? Can I se- or should I separate? Should I confront it? Should I participate or not? Here, here are biblical principles from, from creation. First of all, God created the world and everything in it, right? In Genesis chapter one and two, what does God say about the creation he made? He, he looks at it and he says what? It's good. It's good. It's good, all right? And who did, he get, who did God give this good creation to? Adam and Eve. He gave it to humanity. God says, hey, you two, everybody, this here, this is my stuff. Behold, my stuff. And my stuff I give to you. It's good. And I made it, actually, for you. I'm giving it to you. I made it, and it's good, and it's good for you. So all the things, the, the, the animals, the plants, the, the, all the stuff, I, listen, take it, eat it. Use it, enjoy, live. I'm your God, you're my people. So the, the physical, the, like the theology of creation tells us that the physical things of the world, the created things of this world, can't in and of themselves be cut off from God's provision and purpose. Because that's, that's not what he made them for and how he made them. But this is a big but too. This is just as, just as important to recognize the whole world has fallen. As of Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve, the people that God gave all of this creation to, when our humanity, when we fall into rebellious sin and we ourselves are corrupted, the things that God gave to us now share in that corruption. So it is, it's told to us in Romans eight that at the fall, God, God subjected the whole creation to futility. That means it's just got wrongness in it. It's broken. It's fractured. Whether it's a little bit or a lot, the whole thing is fractured. It's poisoned. It's got wrongness in it. So, so it is true that everything belongs to God. He's creator. And it is true that he made it good. And it is true that he gave it to us. And it's true that he gave it to us because it's good for us. And it's also true that 
everything. It's all got wrongness in it. It's all got wrongness in it. All of good creation gone wrong is actually in need of redemption. So here's how this plays out for, for Paul as he's trying to help people in the, the, the church of Corinth work out this whole in the world of the world thing. In, in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, Paul's addressing this problem of meat. All right? The Christians in Corinth have a problem with some of the meat that's being sold in the marketplace. Here's how, here's how it's working. All right? The pagan priests of Corinth were taking the flesh of animals and using it in their pagan practices and their religious worship services and ceremonies, sacrificing this meat to false gods, demons. And then when their ceremonies were over, they would then take the meat and sell it to the meat sellers at the market because there's too much meat for them to eat themselves. So they sell the extra and they sell it to the marketplace so they can fund the temple, right? So now at the marketplace, back then they weren't enlightened like we are today. There, wasn't, there, were, there were no labels, so nothing in the marketplace told you how many calories, how many sugars, how many extra added sugars, how many carbs, nothing in there about that. No gluten-free or gluten-in, right? No, no marks that says no MSG on it. And there were definitely no signs, no stalls that were identified as non-pagan sacrificed meat and pagan sacrificed meat. It was just meat. It was just being sold. Now, this was, this was concerning, really concerning to a lot of the Christians in Corinth because they believed it was sinful to eat meat that was sacrificed to a pagan idol. That meat has been offered to a false god, and now it's corrupted. And if I eat it, I'll be corrupted. It's like I'm worshiping that pagan idol. And I don't want to do that. So here's how Paul deals with it. He, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 25 through 26, he, he says, hey, eat whatever is sold in the market. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's a quote from Psalm chapter 24. Eat any of the meat by, from whatever stall. Don't, even, don't let it wound your conscience because all, all the meat is God's. It belongs to him. And you know how he feels about you. You, you know your position with him. You, you belong to him and he loves you. The meat is for you. He also says earlier in chapter 6, he says, listen, some of, some of the Corinthians were doing whatever the heck they wanted and didn't care what God wanted. And so they were going, well, it doesn't matter. Food's for the stomach. All right, so we eat food. Well, yeah, but Paul's not going to be satisfied by simply doing that because that is like an over-realization of the theology because they're forgetting something that we just talked about, which is everything needs redemption. So he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. Eat stuff. Food is for the stomach, but God's, God's going to destroy both stomach and food. So what do you need to care about first as you eat food or consider? You need to consider what God thinks. And these brothers who don't want to eat the meat, they're like, well, they're considering what God thinks. They're being godly. Are they right? Are they theologically right that you can't eat meat given a sacrifice to idols? No, they're not right. But they have a godly concern. They care about what God thinks. And Paul then goes, yeah, you're not right. Eat the meat. But I want you to know, hey, good on you. You care about what God thinks. You, you don't want to just like mindlessly go through this world and just take whatever because you're recognizing that there are things in this fallen world that need redeemed because they're broken. There's wrongness in it. So the things that... Here, here's, here's how we need to view this world that we live in. The things that God created were initially good. 
He created it good. It was perfect. God's design of everything. I'm talking physical stuff and like mental stuff, like justice and beauty and poetry and truth, as, as well as like, you know, math and science or, or elephants or trees or steak. All those things, his design of how, how they should be and what they should be for, that's perfect. God's design has not been corrupted. The fall of mankind into sin hasn't corrupted God's design and purposes for this world. It's corrupted the functional reality of the things of this world. Which is why, I, as, a, as a Christian, as a pastor, I can stand with a clean conscience and actually agree with a homosexual person or, or a transsexual person who would go, I was born this way. I can go, yeah, you're probably right. You were born that way. Now, I, can't, I have to part ways with you because you want to say, I was born this way, therefore God wanted me this way. I, I have to part ways with you there. Because it is true, you were born into this world with this sinful flavor to you regarding your sexuality. Just like I was born into this world with a sinful brokenness about my view towards sexuality. You want to sleep with someone of the same sex, or you believe that God got it wrong, or you were born and put into the wrong body type, and you're the wrong gender. Well, I, I was born wanting to look at and touch women I'm not married to. I'm, I'm just like you. You're a native, I'm a native. We, we share that same common ground because we are born. God's design for sex has not been corrupted. God's purpose for our gender not been corrupted. But in the reality of our fallen world, it, the functional outplay of these things have been corrupted. They've been broken. So everything still needs to be redeemed, which means you can't absolutize this creation theology. You can't absolute, you can't over-realize it. Here's what I mean. Genesis chapter one and two, God looks at Adam, he hasn't made Eve, and he says, oh, this is not good. This is not good that man is what? Alone. He needs a wife. And so if you take this creation th theology and over-absolutize it, over-realize it, you'll then go, well, God says it's not good for man to be alone. And so marriage is, is now, it's not just his intention, it's his command. Everyone is supposed to get married. Because God made marriage and it's good and it's good for you and he gave it to you so you better get married. Otherwise, you're not obeying God. And Paul goes, I can't get married. That isn't God's law. He says this in one of his left. I'm not married. If I, if I had a wife, the ministry that I'm obeying the Lord in would kill her. It'd be sinful to, for me to get a wife because I couldn't obey the Lord in the ministry he's called me to. It's because... We don't live in the garden. We don't live in the garden. We don't live in the perfect world of God's original design. We live in the fallen world that needs redemption. So we start from creation theology, and we have to move ourselves toward the biblical principles for Christ, which lead us to redemption. So here biblical principles for Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's fully, truly, eternally, totally God himself. And he what? He became a man. The Bible term for this is incarnation. Jesus, who is God, incarnated himself. I've said this a lot, right? Chili con carne is chili with meat. The incarnation is God with meat. He puts human flesh onto himself. He adds humanity to himself. In John chapter 1, 14, the Bible says that Jesus, who is the word, the logos, he became flesh and he lived amongst us. Jesus is God enfleshed. He became 
one of us. Now, the ultimate foreigner to this world is God. The ultimate foreigner to humanity is God in Jesus Christ. And he became a what? A native. He became one of us. He shared in our nature. That's Hebrews chapter 2. He was tempted in every way that we are. So Jesus walked and lived this life, especially as a hormonal teenage boy, walked around and saw pretty girls. He saw them. He was tempted just like every man in here, just like every girl in here, tempted toward whatever thoughts, sinful thoughts you want to get brought into your head. He was, he was just like us, lived among us, and had our experience. He shared in our nature. And yet, as a foreigner, as he lived as a native, he participated in the culture. So Jesus went to weddings, and he went to weddings, and when the ran, wine ran out, what did he do? He turned the water into wine, because the culture says at weddings you have wine, and you need some good wine, and Jesus participated in the culture. He not only went to temple or synagogue, but he also went to festivals. He went to parties. He went to dinner parties, whether it was at parties and gatherings with elite religious holy people, or whether it was with drunkards or prostitutes or tax collectors. He participated in the culture. He became just like us, but he didn't live just like us. He both participated and separated. He adapted and he confronted. He lived in perfect sinlessness, just like the chief citizen of heaven ought to. And listen, every righteous act that Jesus committed and every unrighteous act that he omitted, it stood as a stark contrast to the people around him, as a confronting indictment on who they were and what they thought and how they felt and what they said and did. He was a strange, offensive, foreign confrontation. And what did we do? We murdered him for it. He didn't have to make a big deal. He just had to be who he was, and the world <laughs> made a big enough deal about it. And this is because Jesus is the chief and ultimate missionary that human, the Christian human missionaries follow. See, here's what a missionary does. A missionary studies, and they learn about a, a culture they're not a part of. They learn the language. They learn the fears, the values. They learn the laws. They learn the customs. They learn all of that. And so they can go and live amongst those people like as one of those people so they can reach them. They, they participate in hundreds or even thousands of various cultural practices and norms, but a missionary, a Christian missionary, also separates from those things where sinful misuse of God's creation is concerned. So a missionary to Zimbabwe or Afghanistan, there are some things that the unbelieving people of that culture do that the Christian missionary can't participate in. But everything else they can, they do, because they, they want to be a native among these people to reach them. They're foreigners living amongst and as natives, participating while confronting. Incarnation, crucifixion, in but not of. Which takes us, that, that's, that's, our, that's our biblical view of, of Christ and how he engages and doesn't engage in the culture of the world around him. So, which takes us to conversion, the biblical principle of conversion. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9 says that you've been, by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's not your doing. The grace you have that has saved you, that's a gift from God. You don't get to brag about any decisions or willpower 
or knowledge or wisdom that you have. You're saved by God's grace. And therefore, he says in verse 2 through 11, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the, in the, in the flesh, you, you used to be called unclean by the clean Hebrews. Well, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, and you had no hope, and you were without God in the world. But now, he says, now something has happened. It's called conversion. God's, God did something and converted something about you and in you. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ because you've been converted by Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10 says that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What's the next word? That. Some translations do this a little better than the English Standard Version. They put the proper word, so that, or in order that. Here is why God has made you a chosen race. From all of the diverse and numerous races of the world, no matter what color, ethnicity, we as Christians, we are God's race. We're his chosen people. Why did he choose us? Why did he make us his royal priesthood? Why did he possess us and make us his own? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You've been converted for native and foreigner purposes. So a Christian is justified by the grace of God alone through faith alone. You're a natural born native of this world. Jesus, in, in, in some places, even, even addresses fallen humanity in, in the New Testament in these gospels, when he goes, listen, your father is of the devil. You're, you're, you're of the father, the devil. The strong man, Satan, who for a time I've permitted to be the king of this world, you, you're in his house, you live in his house, and you live according to his ways. But when you become a Christian and you're converted by the grace of God and you're, you are now not only a natural born native of this world, but now you are a newly supernaturally born native of heaven. But as a native of heaven living here, you're a foreigner. And if that's really happened, if the spirit of God really has come and given you a new life, if you really do have a new status, a new identity, then you won't be able to help it. You won't be able to, ha- but you won't be able to help it. The Holy Spirit of God is going to start getting to work in you, transforming you, applying the redemption that you and your fallen sinful head and heart and body and soul need. And God starts doing that work in you. We call that sanctification. It's progressive sanctification. Day by day, bit by bit. Some seasons you're moving real slow. Some seasons it feels like you're moving real fast and getting more and more mature, stronger in your faith, right? It's it's easier to fight the fight for holiness and mercy and kindness and justice and not tell lies and think good thoughts, right? And other days, man, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. This is really hard work becoming like Jesus. But that work will begin in you and it'll continue if you really have been converted. And not just your professed thinking and feeling, not just what you think and feel, and not just what you say about what you think and feel, but your real, observable, witnessable, real-life activity, your behavior, your actions. 
Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, it says, if, if then, listen, I'm not assuming anything, but if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now, Paul's not going, so don't think about earthly stuff. Don't think about Harry Potter or your career. Don't think about money or politics. Don't think about race relations or sex and gender. Don't think about uh, clothing or TV or movies. He's not, saying, he's not saying don't think about worldly things. He goes, when you think about worldly things, you need to be, think about it with a mind that is set on heavenly things so that the way God's mind of God's kingdom works is now your authoritative ruling thinking when you think about stuff here. He says later in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. If you live simply and only according to the culture, the fallen world of things and lost people, unbelieving world, if you live according to that, and that's the authority, you'll what? You'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to the death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So we are born, fallen, as unbelieving natives of this fallen world, and we are born again into a truer and more powerful nativity in Christ's kingdom. Let me take us to the final of the four biblical principles to help us kind of start discerning what is the will of God in our life, how we are to live in this world. Biblical principles from the kingdom. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, hey, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He says it again in Luke chapter 11, verse 20. He says, hey, listen, if by the finger of God I'm casting out demons, then I want you to know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then in Luke chapter 17, Jesus tells a whole bunch of people, hey, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Why? Because I'm in your midst, Jesus says. This kingdom of God was, it was foretold of, it was foreshadowed, prophesied over and over and over about and prepared for from the beginning of Genesis all the way to Christ's birth and crucifixion. Once Jesus shows up, the kingdom has arrived. That's what he keeps saying. The kingdom is here. Just for a second, I want to pause because it's, it's a very churchy Bible, Bible-ish word and language phrase like the kingdom of God. And church people, Christian people, religious people, we can really take that phrase and stop thinking about what it means and start using it for all sorts of like other well-intentioned stuff, but we're getting it wrong. What is the kingdom of God? It's not the church. The kingdom of God is not the church. It's not the earthly institutions of the church. So I'm, I'll tell you, it, it, it's okay to use language like, Hey, you need to give money toward the kingdom or you need to disciple the little ones, the little children in the ministry into the kingdom. That, that's perfectly okay. No one needs to put their black and white striped shirt on and blow a whistle. We don't need to be Jesus juking people. Going, that's not what the king... Chill out, right? But I, I personally want to avoid equating the kingdom with the church. And here's why. You need to know what the kingdom is. Here's a definition. The kingdom is whoever, whatever, whenever, wherever... The purpose, I'm sorry, the person, the purposes, designs, and commands of God are perfectly obeyed because they're perfectly trusted and loved. That's the kingdom. Whoever loves and, and trusts Jesus and therefore loves all of his ways and his commands and his plans, and they perfectly love him and they perfectly trust his ways and they perfectly obey, that's the kingdom. Wherever. 
they are, whenever it is. So that's why you can't really functionally think of our church as the kingdom. Because we're not perfect. We're not perfect. But we have the legal position before God of being perfect. So that even though we are not perfect functionally, God still treats us like we're perfect. He says we're righteous even though we're not functionally righteous. Which means while the church is not the kingdom, not yet, we in the church are citizens of of the kingdom of God. But then Jesus, he always loves to throw us off. He likes to confuse us and keep us working at this. The kingdom of God arriving in the New Testament means that Jesus himself, who is perfectly obeying and loving God the Father in his purposes, plans, designs, he then says the Last Supper in Luke chapter 22, he goes, hey guys, I'm not going to drink any more wine until my kingdom arrives until my kingdom comes. I'm not going to drink of, the, of the, the fruit of the vine. You can imagine the disciples. Like, well, I thought you said the kingdom's here. I thought you said it's among us. He goes, oh yeah, I am among you. The kingdom is among you. The kingdom is here. But I'm not going to drink wine again. Mm-hmm. Why? Because I'm about to go. I'm going to get, about to get killed. I'll come back. Right, he didn't, he says all that. Right. I'll come back and I'll be around for a little while, but then I got to go. And when I go, I will bring my kingdom in fullness. Then I'll drink wine with you. The kingdom of God is, it is here, and yet it's not completely, completely here. It is now, and it's not yet. We are not at home. We are at home as natives. We are not at home as foreigners. So when Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, he says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He's addressing one of those sides of that duality. Foreign mind, native mind, he's addressing one of those. As a native, you need to live chiefly as a foreigner because that's your greater, truer identity. As you adapt, make sure you confront. As you participate, maintain separation for God's purposes in all things. Don't be conformed. Don't become just like everyone else. But in every righteous way possible, learn and adapt and participate with the natives as a native so they can understand you for the sake of the gospel. So that's going to mean something very big and challenging, especially for many modern-day American Christians, American Christians. Cultural beliefs and values of other cultures, um, they're easy for us to spot because they're different. So that's why a lot of dudes, especially dudes who don't really paint or not very artistic, maybe they got bad eyesight, colorblind, maybe they don't care about interior design. That's why like, a lot of dudes are like, purple, violet, same thing, right? Purple, violet. George's like, no, they're not, man. No, they're not. So, uh, you preach later, right? Um, but, but they look a lot because they're, they're really similar. But it's easy for all of us to spot the difference between purple and green because they contrast so much. The reason I bring that out is... Our own culture as Americans, the, our own culture that we live in as natives of, as foreign Christians, it's hard to see our culture because we're in it. We've been raised in it. It's hard to assess and evaluate and judge the cultural beliefs and values and behaviors and even the history of our American culture and history like because because it's, it's, we've been inside of those things. 
You can't see your own eyeballs with what? Your own eyeballs. You at least need a mirror. You need someone else with eyeballs to look at your eyeballs and help you understand what they're seeing about your eyeballs. And so we live in this, it's hard. This is why I, I, as a pastor, I call our church regularly and I'm gonna, I call for us to regularly and I call on us to prejudicially with great strict judgment, strict judgment to regularly test and judge ourselves as Christians regarding whether or not and to what extent we are participating in and adapting to or even conforming ourselves to American culture. Whether your vision or view of American culture is left or right or whatever, how are we participating, adapting, and are we adopting these things and becoming too native, making this home too much our home, forgetting that we are citizens of the kingdom. We, we need to be prepared to separate and to confront America as foreigners in Christ's kingdom, but as natives of America, which means to judge our culture doesn't mean you have to hate it. Judging our culture may mean you love the culture and the people around us. And as one who loves, we see here's what's wrong and here's a problem and we can get together and we can like, work to see this mended and healed because this is not good. You just hate America. No, I love America. That's why I'm speaking up because it's got a problem and let's fix it. You see what I'm saying? We need to be prepared. That, listen, that's why there's no American flag on our stage or in our building. That's why today, July 3rd, there's no, I'm not preaching and I never have, I'm never gonna preach a sermon on American patriotism. Um, and it's not because I don't love America. I love America. It's, it's great, it's a blessing for me, to, for the Lord to have just gone. How am I gonna let you live in like the wealthiest, most prosperous and most free nation in the world in your time and place? It's not like perfect in any of those areas, but it's, in contrast, it's really, really great. I love that. I'm thankful. But it's not because I hate or dislike America. It's because that stuff, the stuff of culture, is kindling. Americanism and the culture of America is of infinitely less importance than the eternal kingdom of God. It's of infinitely less glory and value compared to the eternal glorious kingdom of God. Why would I ever cheapen Christ, cross, and kingdom by making earthly cultures and their values and beliefs central to our church's church's worship. Now, you come here for ultimate things. That's why you're here. If you're here, I'm assuming you're here for ultimate things. You want to hear eternal things, absolute unending things, beautiful and the most prestigious, glorious things. And I'm not called to, nor do I want to help anyone become a better American Christian or or help us make America a more Christian, better... No. It's my aim as a pastor to preach and teach and lead in such a way that every Christian who will learn might become a powerful minister of the Lord Jesus Christ in any culture that you live in or subculture that you live in, establishing outposts of the kingdom of God's grace and mercy, regardless of the culture. So 
let's let's go to some more like specific practical application. Like, how do what are some things we can do? Uh, you, I want to tell you, you can you can live in your everyday life, in your everyday ordinary life. You can live in this culture or any other culture as a Christian because number one, everything in this world belongs to Jesus Christ, and it is fallen and it needs redemption. And you can live in this world, regardless of every culture, because God has sent you into that culture because the things and people of that culture have fallen and it needs redemption. That's why he's sending a redeemed person to live in that culture as a native. Number two, you can live in your everyday life as a Christian because Jesus truly is God and he became a man. He was murdered for his confrontation of the fallen world that he participated in. And number three, the believer is made just. You're you're called righteous before God for your faith in Christ. And as a newly born foreigner, you progress in your sanctification and you realize more and more each day, more and more of your new and better nativity, your citizenship. And number four, the kingdom of God has arrived and it's on its way. And we who believe, we live waiting for its consummation, which is its full, complete fulfillment and arrival. How, how are you going to know how to maintain some of these balances with, with these truths, these four truths? Creation, king, conversion, uh, kingdom. By not being conformed to this world, instead of getting your mind transformed. Having your mind renewed. Why? Because in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, you need your mind transformed and renewed so that by testing... So that in your life, you can test the things of the world around you. You can look at, think about, study, and do the, like, the real skull-sweating brain work of judging and evaluating what the will of God is at your job, with your kids, regarding technology, or Disney, or movies, or whatever. God wants, us, he wants you judging this world and figuring out what his will for you is when you live in this world. And if you're going to do that, this thing up here has to be transformed. It's got to be renewed. So I tell you this, you can't obey what you don't know. You can't obey what you don't know. And you can't transform into something you don't perceive, and you can't listen to what you don't hear. So this is why banging the same drum every week. I'm not going to change on this. We're not going to change on this. Open your Bible. Open your Bible on your own. Pray with the Lord Jesus and ask him to help you understand his word. Commit to, carve out time, protect it, and make it happen regularly to meet with other Christians and open your Bibles together and pray and ask God to help you guys understand it as you talk about it and meditate on it and chew on it. Commit to worshiping God under the weekly preaching of his word, listening like you are right now to what you had not been hearing as of yet. And good Lord, what a time to be alive in the age of the internet. There are countless resources. I have a list right here and I'm running out of time. I'm not going to give you all the list, but someone help me remind me We'll post this on our Facebook and, and in, uh, resources for your godly learning and renewal and training and transforming of your mind so that you can look at the world around you and figure out and discern and to judge, for your, judge for yourself what the will of God is for you and how you're supposed to do or what you're supposed to say or what you're not supposed to do or say according to God's will. You need to test each and everything in this world according to the gospel doctrines. These four things, creation, Christ, conversion, kingdom. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll trim it down to three. All right? And again, they're, they're all alliterations, so they're all now T's. You got, generally got three options. Take, transform, or toss. Take, transform, or toss. Here, here's what I mean. A Christian regarding anything in this world, if it's a political view or a, a psychological idea or a philosophical concept, or if it's food or 
music or whatever it is. We can take some of those things because everything belongs to God in and of itself. So here's what I mean. The opioid pill that you can't take recreationally, you can take for physician-prescribed relief from physical pain because science and the chemicals all belong to God. And he's, his purpose for those things are for the relief of your pain. So the red meat, the shellfish, the bacon, the barley beer, the grape wine, you can take it, you can enjoy it, and not be in sin. As you take and use those things for God's design and purposes, according to his commands. Laughter, music, singing, dancing, yes, sex, those are all gifts that God gives to us. They're given to us by a God who loves us, so we can take and receive those things with clean and happy consciences according to God's purposes and his designs for us. That's take. Now, transform is just the development of take, okay? We can take or we can transform some stuff. So this is how we develop taking some things because every good thing also has its shadow. So some things are just good and they're just neutral, like apples. Like an apple is just like it's good. You don't need to transform it in order to eat an apple. It's just, it's just naturally, you can just eat it, right? It's fine. But some things, they're, they're not simply naturally by default good they're kind of neutral and it depends on what we're going to do so everything god made and has given to us is fallen because what because us humanity and fallen people put good things to fallen uses so take for instance the internet we can take the internet and we can transform it you know what the single largest consumption use of the internet is pornography like every day, millions of hours accumulating through all of human beings across the globe, every day in a 24-hour period, literally millions of hours of porn pornographic video content is consumed by the 8 billion people living on this planet. But that doesn't mean we can't use the internet. But the meat got sacrificed to idols. It's corrupted. It could corrupt me. The internet's being sacrificed for idols and perversion if I use it, it'll corrupt me. No, we can transform the internet. We can take it if we transform it. Not using it for lust or perversion or abuse or division and strife or arrogantly and proudly and meanly and snidely and sarcastically beating other people up on the internet. You hear me, Twitter, right? But if we use it for education and promotion of ideas that God blesses that are good for human flourishing, for encouragement, for sharing the gospel, putting sermons, writing books, and sharing gospel truth online, yeah, we can take the internet. We can transform it. Or we can toss. Sometimes we have to toss because some uses of things, some activities in this world, just they have to be tossed. There's no taking. There's no transforming them. There's no redemption of those things. So no, there, there's no such thing as Christian pornography. There's just not. It doesn't matter if your spouse likes it too and you guys watch it together, Right? There's no transforming that because it is and only is sinful. There's no transformation of, of slavery. You, you can't, it is, it is an abominable and 180 degree opposite purpose of God for us to even look at, let's say, what we call antebellum American slavery and try to polish and clean up the tarnish of its image in history. That'd be sinful. There's no transforming slavery. It doesn't matter how nice 
a slave master was 200 years ago and whether their slaves got to read or they got to write, they ate better or, or, they, or they did better on the slave master's property than they would have on some other slave master's property or back home in Africa. That, that, none of that counts for anything. It's sin. We, we have to toss out slavery and we have to toss out the reputation and legacy of slavery in every way. We just can't take it. We can't transform it. Here's the last big idea, and I've got to camp out here for just a couple seconds. We, if we're going to discern what is the will of God in our lives, how we're supposed to live in this world, because we are natives in this world, but we are foreigners of Christ's kingdom, then we're going to need to obey the Holy Spirit of our conscience and treat other people with humility. We're going to have to obey the Holy Spirit who lives in us, and we've got to treat other people with humility. Here's what I mean. Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verses 20 through 23, and he's talking about food again. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another person stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So the faith that you have, keep that between yourself and God. He's not saying don't share the gospel. He's not saying don't tell people about Jesus. Don't tell people about your faith in God. No, that's not what he's saying. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. I'll, I'll get back to that and what he means in a second. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I want you to consider a woman who was raised, let's say a woman who was raised in a religious environment, a home, and a church, and she was taught and she believes that wearing lipstick is a sin. I want you to think it's a sin to wear lipstick. Now, if this woman then goes and puts lipstick on, is she sinning? Careful. What did Paul just say? Yeah. She's sinning. Considering what she does know and what she does feel and what she believes, what she's been taught to believe, she's been taught wrong. But if she put, then puts on lipstick, it may be because she's deciding, I'm going to do something to anger God. I don't like God. I want to disobey God. I'm going to rebel. I was raised that God doesn't like me wearing lipstick. You know what? I'm my own person. God you can bug off with your laws and your rules because I think it's unfair. I'm going to do what I want. Is she in sin? Yeah, but not with the lipstick. Not because of the lipstick. Because of what? These. Lips, wearing lipstick isn't sinful, but her conscience her sincerely held convictions regarding what God approves of and don't, he doesn't. She's putting on a lipstick to defy God and disobey him, then that's what she's doing. Now, what does she need? Well, she needs the gospel of Jesus, Jesus for forgiveness of all of her sin, any. And she definitely needs to be born again so this heart of disobedience and defiance is removed, so it's replaced with a heart of love so she wants to obey God and not defy him. And she also needs the lie that she believes about God and lipstick be 
displaced by truth. She needs that. She needs someone to actually tell her what God does and doesn't approve of. But she needs that number three one. She needs the truth about what God does and doesn't approve of. She needs that third after one and two. Because if she gets that one first without her heart and mind being saved and changed, it won't matter. This is why Paul has to keep on addressing food. Listen, guys, it's not a sin to eat a certain kind of meat, regardless of the animal or the source. God made food for the stomach. But someone has been, some of you have been weakened by bad teaching. Or the Lord has given you a unique weakness toward some particular food or activity. It's not a sin to drink alcohol. But some amongst us, the Lord has permitted you to have a weakness where you have now become an alcoholic and you have a weakness, uh, you, you might not need to be drinking alcohol. You definitely don't need to be drinking alcohol. Not because it's a sin to drink alcohol, but it's a sin against your own conscience. And so when you drink alcohol, now you're sinning. So watch Harry Potter. Or don't. Listen to Metallica. Or don't. Drink alcohol. Or don't. Get a tattoo. Or don't. And whatever these things are, and whatever you do, if you're going to do it, do it in a way that glorifies and honors Jesus with a clean conscience. And if you can't do those things, honoring Jesus with a clean conscience, then you better not. And you don't need to feel bad about your conscience. Listen, I don't want you, listen, don't let anyone, especially not Christians, don't let Christians or anyone else let you feel stupid or weak or crazy or embarrassed because you're fighting your faith, fighting for faith and obedience toward God in your life, and you have restrictions in your conscience that don't permit you to do some things because it would be a sin for you and it's not a sin for other people. Don't let anyone make you feel bad or ashamed about that. You're a square. Don't let them. Uh-uh. And you need to live this way humbly because this person, this person, they can get prideful real quick too. In this way, Paul says, keep the faith you have between yourself and God. Again, he doesn't mean don't share the gospel. What he's saying is don't start taking the personal and u- unique rules that the Holy Spirit has given you in your conscience, telling you what God approves of and disproves of in your own unique personal life, don't start making them universal rules for everybody else. You can't call what's not automatically sin, sin, and condemning others for doing what the Holy Spirit won't let you do. Because that'd be prideful. What are God's universally applicable commands to all? Don't lie. Don't bear false witness. Love one another. Do justice. Don't steal, don't kill, not in your head, heart, or with your hands. And what are his unique and personal commands for your personal faith? And don't, so don't, don't make a big show of your conscience, that of how your conscience is bound by the spirit. Don't make a big deal of it. Don't act like it matters and makes you better or more holy than other people. Don't, don't work it into conversations. Don't boast about it on Facebook. Keep it between yourself and the Lord. Don't make a big show of yourself to make yourself look good because you are so faithful and you have more restrictions that can't sin in. Someone asks or the need to explain arises, then yeah, that's an open door opportunity for you to talk about that and share why you're doing that because I honor the Lord. I love him and what matters to him matters to me. So I'm, I'm withholding. I have every right to wear that lipstick or drink that beer or dance at that club or do what I have every right, but I I'm withholding myself from that right because the Lord has told me that's that's how I'm going to honor him, so I'm going to do that. That's perfectly okay to say. But listen, don't go kicking doors in your life all over the place to go, well, I don't drink alcohol. I don't have tattoos. 
and my kids don't watch Disney. Now you're sinning. The final one here is respect how the Spirit binds other Christians' consciences. Respect other people. Paul says it's not automatically sinful to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and he does. He does refer to the brother who thinks it is sin. He calls them weak. He is saying one of you is right, one of you is wrong. One of you is weak. You have a weaker view of what the truth is here. But listen, Paul says, like Jesus, you need to make yourself weak like your weaker brother. You need to accommodate your brother. Put his concerns above your own. Hand over your God-given liberties and freedoms for the sake of your brother's welfare, just like Jesus does. So if he can't eat meat, don't eat meat in front of him. If he can't drink the beer, be happy and joyful as you don't drink alcohol in front of him. If their kids can't watch Disney movies, don't start streaming Frozen when they come over for a play date. Each and every Christian is a foreigner living in this world as natives, doing the hard, we're doing hard work of trying to get our minds transformed by the word of God, trying to be in faith, trying to obey the spirit, not only of the Bible, but also of our conscience. And it's a difficult task to discern what is the will of the Lord regarding what you will and will not do in this fallen world. So we need to treat one another with patience and humility and respect. And even if you feel it's loving to lead someone who's poorly taught, hey, listen, girl, lipstick's okay. Lipstick's not sinful. It's okay. You do it in love, recognizing and accepting that their faith walk is in the Lord's hand. So even if she goes, yeah, I, okay, maybe, but I'm still just not going to wear it. You don't, you don't have to like brand her as a weakling, as a fool, as an idiot, because she's not going to live according to the same application of this truth like you. You're going to respect the binding of her conscience by the Holy Spirit himself. Because the, the selfish manipulation of God's law and Christian conscience is a powerful and destructive force, especially in the church. Legalists are masterful in guilt manipulation. When they make intolerable what God tolerates in his mercy, and they add rules and, and burdens upon people that Jesus died to lift. And there's a different group called antinomians. They're just kind of Christians in name only. And they've mastered the art of quiet denial of Christ and approval of disobedience under the, under the disguise of love and tolerance. And both those people are, are, are dangerous. We as Christians, the, the gospel trait of a person who really believes the Bible this gospel trait is that they, they understand, they see themselves, they have the identity, identity that I am a native in this world, participating and adapting. And I do that as a foreigner of Christ's kingdom, separating, and confronting, and not conforming, adapting, not adopting. And this is, this is gonna show up in the outward visible life of a Christian as we discern what is the will of God, what is good and perfect and holy for us. Let me pray for us and we'll worship the Lord with communion. Father God, I do ask that you give us the mind of your son, Jesus. There are those today who are listening online or they're, they're sitting in these seats among us and they're burdened by burdens that you died to raise from them. pray that you would free them and tell them the truth about what you approve of so they can discern and love you and obey you.
Lord, I pray that there are some of us who are too adaptive, too, too worldly, too native, and we ought to be brought back by you in repentance and forgiveness and happiness to know that we really are foreigners. Lord, I pray that we would do such, do such things that we would think and, and feel and, and live in such a way that honors and glorifies you as we're sent into this world just like, Father, you sent your son into this world so that your gospel will get out there and get in there by the people you send. We pray this for the renown and the glory of Jesus and our joy. Amen. Thanks, guys. I love you.